0: Hi, good morning. It's uh, kind of an interesting thing that we're doing here, especially in this time with uh, people staying at home because of the virus and everything. And so we just want to be able to present this message to you. And um, we're continuing in our series, which means I would love to be able to give you a lot of comfort right now about all sorts of stuff. Yet, continuing in our series, we're kind of in the midst of the apocalypse, which we all are, I guess, and I'll be talking more about that. So, anyway, this is one of our first trials. We will um, we'll see what we can refine here, but we're thankful that you're able to view this with us today. One of the ongoing motifs and stories and books and films has to do with somebody who has been a has-been hero, or they've lost their whatever it was that made them good or talented at one time, and then they try to get that back. Um, You see that in all sorts of movies. I remember watching The Magnificent Seven when I was a kid, and there was one guy in there who was a gunslinger, but he was a washed-up has-been. And it was kind of is he going to get back on his feet? And he did get on his feet, and two minutes later got shot, but that was the Magnificent Seven. And then there's the famous movie, Black Knight. And in Black Knight, if any of you know the movie, there's the character Nolte, Sir Nolte, who has, because England has fallen down the tubes and everything, he's just lost his way. Gets it back. And Then Star Wars, to a certain degree, you've got Obi-Wan, who's kind of a washed-up guy. And then in this last one, you had Luke, who was washed up, and they come back, right? We love those kinds of stories. They kind of keep you on the edge of your seat, and there's something about us. I mean, there's some kind of hope that's built into this, that these people will actually get it back. And that's part of life. We like to see things get back on track that have gone bad. Um, Kids see mom and dad having a hard time, and I know this from growing up, and they're wishing that mom and dad would be able to get their act together, and that doesn't happen. Sometimes it does, but often it doesn't. Or we'll see somebody who looks like they have all this built-in potential in their life and they could really do something amazing and we watch them for years and years and years and realize that it's not going to happen. And that also happens with believers. It also happens with churches. And so here we are in the series in Uh, Revelation, talking about the church at Laodicea. Now, if we talk about the church of Laodicea, we talk about any of the churches of Revelation, most people don't know what most of them are, right? But the one thing they do know is Laodicea. Laodicea is that famous church. That, by the way, gets no commendation from the Lord. All the other churches get at least a good look from him, but not Laodicea. Now, I believe the letters are here for a purpose. The letters are here in the book of Revelation and all the letters are written actually to all the churches. So at the end of each church's letter, it says, he who has ears to hear, let let him hear what the Lord has to say to the churches. So all of these letters are for all of the churches and I think it's very important that these letters are where they are before the actual beginning of the tribulation in the book of Revelation, because it's the Lord's way of saying, wake up. Wake up and get about what you are supposed to be doing. The book of Revelation is what we call the apocalypse. Now I know a lot of us, I think, we're living through the apocalypse right now because of what is happening, but that is nothing compared to what actually takes place in this book. We've been going through maybe a month of this, two months of it. Uh, Maybe this was actually known back in December and it never quite came out. So maybe we've got four months of what is happening right now. And this is what it looks like. What happens in Revelation happens so much quicker. In Daniel chapter 9, it says, 70 weeks are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. The book of Revelation is that 70th week. The church is before the 70th week begins. But when those weeks begin, they take off in rapid fire because you've only got 70 weeks or or seven years to pull off the entire tribulation. And just think about this. If you understand chapter 6 of Revelation, I'm I'm just giving that to give you some perspective here. Chapter 6 of Revelation, you have all seven seals broken. And then comes, it says in chapter 7, after this I saw... angels standing and holding back the wind and this is where you get the hundred and forty four thousand so before the hundred and forty four thousand can appear who will evangelize the world all six of those seals have to be broken and they will happen in rapid fashion that means that within months the world will never be the same it will make what we're going through right now look very trivial. In fact, the fourth seal is that a fourth of the population of the earth dies. So imagine that happening within the first six months of the tribulation. That's gonna be really terrible. So here is what I'm getting at. This is our ministry right now. We are the ones, the church, who are supposed to be working. So it's very important that these letters are here. And the Lord is saying, wake up. This is actually a kind of plea from the Lord. Saying to every one of us, whether it's the church body together or every individual person who knows Jesus Christ, saying, wake up, now is your time of opportunity. Now you have the advantage, you have the the gift, you have the message to bring to a world that is going to be going through One of the most harrowing experiences, if you think it's scary now, it will be so much scarier then. This is the time for the church to rise up, and this is where the Lord is right now, bringing us this last letter to the church of Laodicea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears, give us a sense of fearlessness, Not a sense of fearlessness because we're not afraid of death. A sense of fearlessness because we know the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what you ask us to do is take this love that you put in our heart and this light that you've given to us and take that into a lost and dying world and help us not to be forgetful. Help us not to be distracted. Help us not to not serve our master the way we should. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, we're in Revelation chapter uh, chapter 3, right at the end, verses 14 through 21. And we'll see what we find here. Chapter 14 says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Now the angel is messenger. Obviously a real live angel would not need a letter. They kind of have direct connect to the Lord, but he's talking about the leaders, the leader, the leaders of those churches, and he's telling them to listen. Write this, because you wouldn't want to write this to any real angel, unless they're a bad kind, but he says, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, to the elders, if you will, of the church of Laodicea, write the words of the amen. The faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation. Now, all of these letters have a unique beginning, and I really like this beginning here. It says, the words of the Amen. Now, that sounds like the end of a prayer, right? The Amen. Uh, we were familiar with Jesus talking, uh, especially in the Gospel of John, where he says, truly, truly, or he says, verily, verily, in some versions, and the word means truth. So when he says verily, that's actually coming from the word veritas for truth. The idea is, is that Jesus is the one who gives truth. He's that final word of affirmation to everything that God has promised, all of the prophecies of the Bible. So imagine that, you walk through the Bible and you think of all the amazing promises that God has given that have come to fruit in Jesus. The things that are still in the future for us the millennial kingdom in the new heaven and new earth Jesus is the Amen to that he is the founding and grounding truth that all of that is going to take place isn't that amazing I think it's amazing right I mean talk about giving you a shot of adrenaline before the apocalypse before the appearing of Christ For us to get our work done, here it is. Jesus guarantees everything. Amazing, right? Then it says, and I'm going to skip here because I'd like to skip things a little bit because I'm from Milwaukee. It says, the beginning of God's creation. Well, the beginning of God's creation. I know some people would struggle with this a little bit, but that word for beginning can also mean ruler where it says Jesus in Colossians is the firstborn uh, of creation, the firstborn, don't think of him as having been born, having, he has the right to inherit and own everything, right? He is the firstborn, the inheritor of creation. He is the ruler of creation. Well, you say, well, obviously he's the ruler of creation because he's God the Son, He is also a human man who will rule God's creation forever. And that designation had to have been given to him by his father. He is the ruler of creation. Well, folks, you've got the the one who guarantees all of the promises of God. You have the ruler of creation. And what do you have right in the middle there? The faithful and true witness. Now, I don't have to describe what faithful and true mean to you, but the word witness is the word martyr. It's what he paid. Not only faithful and true in his words and and in his, his loving kindness, but the fact that he himself is the witness. He himself gave that witness with his own blood. That's amazing. So, I mean... I know we got kind of stuck in verse 1, or the first verse of this, but here's the deal. Everything is guaranteed to us in Jesus. And he is telling this church, everything is his, which means it also belongs to us. So, here's the problem. How do you go from verse 14 to verses 15 and 16? How in the world did that happen? Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. How can you have verse 14 on the one hand that tells us everything that is the most amazing thing about our Lord and then you have verses 14. 15 and 16, where the Lord is saying, basically, you're worthless. Now, I could go into all the stuff, which we don't have time for, about talking about the cold water that was up in the mountains and how the Romans built aqueducts down to uh, Laodicea, but by the time it got there, it was kind of, eh, not cold anymore. And then they had hot springs, and they would take the water from the hot springs, and they would try to bring them over to Laodicea, but by the time they got there, they were kind of, eh, couldn't tell it from the cold water that came down from the mountains. That's not the point. We all understand hot or cold. Now, it isn't that the Lord is saying, I'd I'd like you to at least be cold, you know, totally disinterested. What he's saying is what you're doing is not worthwhile. It is certainly not in any respect fitting for who he is. Just think, verse 14 is who he is. Verses 15 and 16 are potentially who we are, and that does not work together at all. And so the problem here, and there is no commendation, he comes right into it, and he says, you have a problem, and he says, here's how I feel about you. If you don't change, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, that is a very tame translation. The word actually means, if you live in Kansas, he's going to relf you out of his mouth. Uh, if you're in youth work, you're gonna blow, he's going to blow chunks. The word's vomit. Just think about that. Could it possibly be that right now at this time, as the Lord looks down upon churches, he sees churches that have fallen so much out of the way that he says, if you don't change, I will vomit you out. You are not worthy of me. I can't find anything fitting in you. There is no commendation here. And so let's look at the problem. In verse 17, it says, For you say, and here's why they were so neutralized. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not knowing that you're really wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. They said, I am rich. You know, Laodicea had one of the famous distinctions of having had a massive earthquake. And the Roman government came in like the American government would and would say, we'll give you trillion, we'll print up trillions of dollars for you to get you back up on your feet. And Laodicea said, nah, we got enough. We don't need it from you. They were rich. They were self-sufficient. I have prospered and I need nothing. Now, this is a problem, and this is particularly a problem if you're thinking about churches in the West. There are some serious issues involved in this, and you if you read the Gospels regularly, regularly you'll find Jesus talking about it. Having comfort and wealth does something to our faith. Did you notice that in all the letters, the only churches who had nothing negative said about them, were the persecuted churches, the churches that had very little, the churches who were under fire. In the Gospels, Jesus very often presents it as if, if you have too much, it will wreck you. It's kind of like looking at the seeds that are thrown out, and you have the seed that was thrown among the thorns. It grew, and Luke even tells us that it kind of looked like it had fruit, but that fruit never matured. And why was that? Because of the cares of life, the desire for riches, and the interest in other things, in pleasures, in comforts. And I don't know about you, but that says a lot to what the Western church looks like. And I know none of us here think that that would apply to us in any way, because when we sing songs and we pray we really love Jesus, I get all of that, but the disciples sure had a hard time with this concept. You know, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, right, and, he, and, and Jesus says, okay, yeah, and it says that Jesus loved him, and he says, you just have to sell everything that you have, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And the man sulks away, and he looks at his disciples, and he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And we go, ah, I understand, rich. The disciples didn't get it. How is it that the disciples didn't get it? I mean, I even get it, and I'm from Milwaukee. Here's the deal. There's something in what Jesus was saying that we don't understand. Because they, they were not offended. They were astounded that he said what he said. And Peter comes back with, what then, Lord, shall we have? The implication of Jesus' words in that context were, if you have more than what you have on your back right now, it will become a hindrance for you entering my kingdom. And it blew them away. There is something about stuff, there is something about comfort, there is something about being at peace that is corrosive to having an active, vibrant church or spiritual life. And we think, ah, this is okay. I was reading one thing where, where uh, Jesus was saying, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll, he'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And then it says, the disciples, who were, by the way, lovers of money, heard all this and they scoffed at him. And I think that we had that scoffing too a little bit. We think that an easy life, uh, what does it say here? Um, a, a rich life, uh, We're not. maybe we don't think we're rich, but compared to other people in the world, we are. Prosperous life, we don't really need anything. We think that that, we can still have that and have a vibrant, dynamic, spiritual life. And I think what the Lord is saying here is you've got to watch out. There's a, one of the, I guess one of the images you could put to this is John 15 and the, the branch that bore no fruit. Another thing that you could put with this is a, a song by Keith Green called Asleep in the Light. Can you imagine that, being asleep in the light? And that's the brilliance of that song. Because he says the church can't help the lost Because they're sitting in the light, they're asleep in the light, and they're fruitless and useless for what the Lord wants to do. So anyway, where we are right now, verse 17, the Lord is describing what this problem is that they have. And so here is the Lord's remedy. Here is the Lord's remedy. But before I get into that, I just want to say, In the Western world, it is very easy for us to become blind to things. And I think there is a portion in this letter that that everyone has been stung by a little bit in saying, is it possible that we are that church? Is it possible that we have characteristics of that church? And before I get into verse 18, I just want to say this as a litmus test. are we winning people to christ are we being ambassadors for christ are we fulfilling the great commission are we winning people and are we making disciples who make disciples and i would say any church that cannot say wholeheartedly that they are might be in danger so let's go into verse 18. so jesus is giving counsel now to the churches and this is what he says i counsel you to buy from me Gold refined by fire that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you and to keep you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So he says three things, kind of an easy three thing list to remember gold that's been refined by fire, uh, white robes and salve for your eyes now that seems pretty easy right here's the deal when we think of gold refined by fire what do we think of we think of the refining process don't we how does a person become refined it isn't just having gold it's having true riches how do those true riches come because he says that to one of these churches i think it's philadelphia you have the true riches, and those came through persecution. I think what God is saying here is that we need to step out and be counted. How many of our churches anymore teach people how to do evangelism? Anybody here hate evangelism like I do? Yeah, I don't like to do it either. I was in the, the parking lot the other day of, of Home Depot, And I had four tracks in my pocket and I went into Home Depot, I made a guerrilla raid in there, didn't breathe any air, I walked right out and I thought to myself, I didn't even give a track to anyone. And here are all these people who have far less hope than I do and I did nothing. I, I got the stuff in my car and I sat in my car for a minute and I said, Dan, you're a worm. You are just a legitimate worm. So I went out and held my breath and I gave out like six tracks to people. None of us like to do it. We don't even teach people to do it anymore. How would they even know it's normal if they looked at us, right? How would they even know that this is what we're supposed to be about is giving testimony for Jesus Christ? Because we think we're okay if we don't do that. And what he's saying here is get gold that is refined. Allow yourself to be refined. Step out. Do something. He even has to tell Timothy Not to be ashamed of testifying to our Lord or of me, his prisoner. It happens to us. But in spite of that, we have to do it. And you know what we have to do? We just have to do it. You know, when we had all that activity going in the gym there, uh, it was kind of interesting to me that on the periphery of the kids going wild in there, there were old guys standing there. And I could tell some of these old guys were just looking going... Well, I remember what it was like to throw a football. Yeah, yeah, Well, 40, 45 years ago I threw a football one time. <laughs> so I go up to Scott, and I said, Scott, why don't you just take that ball and throw it? And, and that was Roy. Well, actually, you know, Roy's maybe a bad one for this example. But the point is, is see, we get out of shape by just not doing stuff. Some of you sitting here were far more active 30 years ago than you are now. But here's the deal. Younger men, younger women are looking at you and they're saying, is he doing it? Or is she doing it? And if you're not doing it, they think it's normal not to do it. And you've just gotten out of shape. I try to do 100 push-ups a year. No. More often than that. And you know what? It's just to keep my shoulders from freezing up on me. The thing is, when we stop doing stuff, it hurts us, and that's why we need the church. We need to be refined. And the way we become refined is we step out for Jesus and we start getting some legitimate, real pushback from people who don't want anything to do with Jesus. And that's the process that begins us going to the Lord on our knees and having to put ourselves out there. And Paul has this great thing for Timothy. He says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anybody here being persecuted? You're not trying. We need to get out and let that promise be a part of our lives. In the book of Hebrews, very interesting, this is a group that used to be active and alive and they would go visit people in prison and allow lot their goods to be taken. But after all these years, the writer is saying, remember what it was like at the beginning with that first love of Jesus Christ? And he says, you've lost that. And now you're worried about losing it and you're going to become quiet. Don't become quiet. So the first thing Jesus is saying is get gold that is refined. Allow your lives to be refined. Step out and start doing something about it. The second thing he says is to get white robes. Well, that would be a hit in Paris for sure. Although Paris is on shutdown right now. Nobody'd be looking out the windows. They don't care that you're wearing a white robe. White robes don't really make it at the mall either. But the white robes mean something. Now, hold on. Obviously, they have something to do with holiness, right? But, you know, in Revelation, you find the white rope thing going on quite a bit. And they are attached to one crowd in particular. So, flip over to chapter 6, verse 11. And he's talking about those who are under... The fifth seal is actually looking at the souls under the altar, and now God is going to pour out vengeance because of what has happened to them, because they were martyred. They say, when will you judge and avenge blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. They're given white robes for having been martyrs. And then in chapter 7, he sees 144,000 standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. That's in verse 9. And then if you go down a little bit further to verse 14, it says, who are these? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And, of course, the verse that I always like to turn to is the one where Satan is being defeated. In verse uh, chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. I'm going to jump out on this one and I'm just going to say that I think what Jesus is saying is you need to be willing to put your life out there for me. Didn't he say that to his disciples? Didn't he say something about um, denying yourself and taking up your cross daily and following me? He said that to his disciples. He's, this is what he said. Now, just let me tell you this. You can read I mean, I read a lot of books, and maybe there is a book on discipleship out there like this, but I never found one. Because if you look in the Gospels at the hard discipleship things that Jesus said to his guys, nobody could sell that book. I mean, you could write it down, but nobody would want to buy it. Jesus had an interesting meeting at a Pharisee's house. He walks out, multitudes are following him. He turns and he looks at them and he says, if anyone follows me, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and child, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not pick up his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's a very intense part, and that's not the end of it. It even gets worse because he says, which of you who would build a tower wouldn't sit down first and count the cost? Or if you're going to go into war, wouldn't you sit down and take counsel to see if you were able to meet this other guy? And then he concludes that with, so whoever will not renounce everything he has cannot be my disciple. I think the point Jesus is saying here is you need to get a white robe that is going to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. The faithful and true witness, faithful and true martyr. Standing with Jesus shouldn't really be that much of a problem because he is the one who gave his life for us. And we all say we want to do it. It's just hard to find anybody who's willing to do it. Even talk to their neighbor or talk to people in a Walmart parking lot, right? But So you get gold, you get a white robe, and then you do something with your eyes. Now, I know that they made salve, and they had an eye clinic in Laodicea, and so that's very significant. But if you read the Gospels, there's something that's even more gripping when Jesus talks to his guys and he says to them things like be careful how you hear because the measure you give will be the measure you give back for to him who has will more be given and he'll have abundance but for him who has not even what he has will be taken away and you're going man what is he talking about is he talking about stuff He's talking about your understanding. Be careful how you hear. Because if you hear something and you do not use it, it almost becomes like, and you don't, you don't use it, it becomes like a testimony against you. And then he's saying, like like so we're big on teaching, right? But what Jesus is saying is, if you're big on teaching, then you need to do something with what you've got. Because if you don't, it actually has a reverse effect. It it puts you to sleep. It makes you think you understand and you don't understand. And really, if you don't use it, that understanding that you think you have might be taken away from you. Howard Hendricks used to say to us all the time, "To, to say you know and not to do is not to know at all. But we traffic in unlived truth. And we think it's okay because I've already had that course. And what you don't realize is you may be blind. Jesus says this to his disciples on at least two or three occasions. He said, your eye is the lamp of your body. So if your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. You know, If you, if you understand properly, then that just goes right through you. But if your eye is not sound, your whole body will be full of darkness. He says, take care, lest the light in you be darkness. Now, he's saying that right to his boys. He's not saying that to anybody else at this point. I think what he's saying to them is this. If you misinterpret Christianity, if you misinterpret my message or what it means to belong to me, and you really get that down solid in your life, that this is what it is, but that's not the truth, there'll be a good part of darkness in you. And what about people who then come to us and they try to get light from us and we show them that light as being having sort of a neutralized Christianity? And that's when he says to his disciples, a disciple is not greater than his master. Are we making disciples that maybe are blind? What Jesus is saying here is, go get your eyes fixed. Get the log out of your eye. Come to me and let me heal you and and understand what following me is really about. And going on here, in verse 19, it says, Those whom I love I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. So, this is kind of like what it says in Hebrews. I mean, what son does not receive discipline, right? And so Jesus is saying right here is, this is actually a very hopeful verse. I'm giving you a chance. I'm giving you a chance because I love you. I'm chastising you. I'm reproving you so you can get better. Remember the scenario at the beginning of of people who have all this potential, but will they come back? Will they repent and bring it back together? And that's what he's rooting for here. That's what Jesus wants. It's okay that we fall down. It's okay that we mess up. The question is, will we get back up on our feet? Will we receive him for who he truly is? Now, what's interesting here is this. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Uh, The word zealous, if you trace it right back to its root, it means bring something to boiling. So he really does want us to be hot, right? He wants us to be zealous. He wants us to repent. Now we come to verse 20. Verse 20 is one of those famous verses in the Bible, and you see why here it applies to believers. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come, up, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You could not find at this point, talking to this church, this group of people, or maybe to any one of us, a more compassionate offer. You know, I've said it a lot of times. I think Christianity is so unique in that the symbol of our relationship with our Lord is a meal, the breaking of the bread, the bread and the wine that we sit down with him and we enjoy this meal together. And this is what Jesus is saying here. This is just like John chapter 14, verses 20 through 23. This is amazing stuff. Jesus is wanting the relationship with us. He's knocking on the door. And here's the deal. Do you really want him to knock on the door? I remember, I'll never forget this, we had a shade over the door. I'm a little kid, probably about four or five years old. My mom is holding a baby in her arms. And we're standing as far back from the door as possible. Whoever's at the door can't see through. And he's knocking on the door going, Mrs. Kachikas, I know you're in there. Come on out here. You're delinquent on your bill. You've got to pay this thing. And I'm a little kid, and I'm just terrorized. So I'm not really... When when I hear the door, somebody knocking at the door, you know, I don't necessarily think it's this guy. I finally tracked you down, I'll pay for your family. It's, um, you know, it's it's like waiting for that other shoe to drop. Jesus is not saying a shoe will drop here. He's saying this is a friendly offer. This is a loving offer. I want to come in and I want to help you. But the thing is, I have met Christians who I don't really think want Jesus to come in and help they kind of like what they're doing right now, and they don't want to even admit that they could possibly be in the wrong, going down the wrong avenue or be doing the right thing or having misinterpreted this or redefined this in some way that Jesus wouldn't like. He's not knocking on the door to bring us punishment. He's knocking on the door to bring us healing, to refine us, and to give us that white robe, and to cure our eyes so we see properly. Of course, there's some of you, when you get the knock on the door, you think it's Amazon, so you're happy, you know, you run to the door, thinking it's more stuff. Anyway, um, I was looking at some verses not long ago that are really interesting in this direction. Um, Jesus is talking about the joy that we should have. The joy of just coming to him and being so totally for him. And he says to his disciples, he says, sell everything. Sell everything. And you'll have true treasure. And he says, gird your loins and have your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to return from the marriage feast so that they can open to him at once when he comes and knocks. Can you imagine that? Standing by the door and you are in this anticipation. You love your master so much so that when he comes and knocks, it's not like, did you time that? Yeah, that was like five one-hundredths of a second. You're slow. You need to be quicker. It's the anticipation. It's the joy. And Jesus says, this relates to this context, by the way. He says, Blessed are those servants who, when the master comes, will find a I tell you, he will gird himself and have them sit at table, and he will serve them. Wow. And if he comes in the third watch or in the second watch, blessed are those servants. And then Jesus turns the thing around and he says, But if the householder had known in which hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So you also must be ready, for you do not know. For the uh, It says, for the Son of Man will come at an unexpected hour. Folks, we don't want to be those people. We don't want to be those people that are surprised by our Lord. And so... The compassionate offer, the compassionate offer is for every one of us. I take that as an offer for me. That Jesus is willing to come in and he's still willing to, to refine and to, to replace and sand down and and polish up things in me where I could serve him better. And I think he means that for all of us, but we have to be willing to receive that. We have to be willing to go to the door. And I think that it isn't just that we're blind sometimes, it's that we don't even hear the knock, and we definitely are not looking forward to it should it happen. And I think those people, those churches, are some of those 4,000 churches a year that go out of business. Verse 21, He who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I, con- I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And you go, what? What? He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself... What? It's, this is the church that doesn't even have a commendation. But if you're asking me in the shop of Jesus' gifts, rewards, they get the best reward. I mean, you know, we're not going to fight about it. You, you may think it, it comes to the church of Philadelphia or somebody else. But, you know, I look at this, and I think of Psalm 27. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In Psalm 90, Moses taking these people, but it isn't just that he's taking these people for 40 years in the wilderness and they haven't had a dwelling place. But Moses is looking now back to the beginning of Israel, back to the beginning of mankind, where this whole mess came from. And he says, God, you have been our dwelling place from ages past. To think that we can dwell with our Lord Jesus Christ. If you think of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, where it says that we are seated with Christ, with Christ in the heavenly places, because it's by grace that we have been saved. And then it says in verse 22, He "He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are to all the churches. We may not think it applies to us, I don't know, but he says, This is to all the churches. And I think it does apply to any church that I've ever been in. Maybe I'm the problem. I have no clue. But the lack of fruit, we need to seriously consider what that is and why that is. And we need to put ourselves out there. He doesn't expect us to be brilliant. In fact, he's knocking at the door and he says, I've got the cure. I mean, if you had the coronavirus and somebody knocked on the door, wouldn't you be happy if they had the cure? And Jesus says, I've got the cure. I want to come in. I'm not worried about being contaminated. In fact, my presence will make you holy. It'll get you well. But do we really want to do the hard work of repenting, being zealous in repenting? That is always the bind, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you a little story about somebody who repented and how God used them. Uh, There was a great nation... And there was a prophet who was sent unto them. And you know the story of Jonah, right? Well, here's what you don't know about the story of Jonah. Assyria was a rising power. And they had a couple of different opportunities to seize the reins and really have a dynasty. And both times, God, in his own way, cut their legs out from under them. Now, we know what happens in the book of Isaiah, how Assyria comes to the door, the door of Jerusalem, and in one night, God takes out 185,000 people. That kind of defeated their aspiration to become a world power. They never had a world empire. But the time before that was, as they were growing, the Assyrian Empire was hit by the Black Plague. And it so devastated them that uh, they never thought they would recover at all. Now, isn't it interesting that that had just happened before God sent Jonah to Nineveh? And of course, Jonah really wanted to go, right? Because he had already read that Nineveh, that the Assyrians would take the northern kingdom into captivity, so he didn't want to see, be any part of any of them being saved. They didn't deserve it in his mind. But God had a different opinion. And so he had to eventually repent. And he got three days to do that in the belly of a whale. And isn't it interesting, thinking about this context, so what happened with Jonah after God released him? It vomited him out. But that was the whale vomiting Jesus. I mean, uh, uh, Jonah out. So what does he do? He goes to Nineveh. This guy who does not want to go to Nineveh, but he 's going to go there because God saved him and he 's going to do that, and he 's repenting, and he goes to Nineveh, how ready were the people of Nineveh to hear this message if i 'm writing the story it 's kind of like this Jonah's sitting down, you know Nineveh would have been like a, a city with all sorts of different districts, a huge city. It took, said it took two and a half days to walk across, and uh, so he 's in a marketplace in one of these areas, sitting down probably by a a well or a fountain or something like that. And you know, maybe one of the vendors comes up to him and he says, Hey, buddy, you wanna buy a bagel? Jonah goes, No. Oh, yeah. well, you don't look too happy. What are you here for? Well, no, I'm just what I didn't hear that. What was that? Well, God, God, God sent me here because you know, if you guys don't repent, you're gonna you're gonna be judged. What? We're gonna what? Hey, Joe! This guy says That we're gonna be judged if we don't repent. Whoa! And all of a sudden, this little wildfire of people start who who have heard a message that Jonah didn't want to deliver. And he's probably seen this happening, going, oh man, I knew this was gonna happen. Keeps walking. Pretty soon it gets to the king, and the king repents. It gets to the animals, dogs and cats are wearing, no, it's actually the oxen and sheep and everything are wearing sackcloth. They were ready to hear this message, why? Because they had been decimated, not only by a plague, but by the understanding of how fragile their lives were. Folks, we live in such a time right now This is the time that God has called you to, and you have the message of hope. And this is not something being made up. The entire world is under this right now. And this is a cakewalk compared to what the tribulation is going to look like. But this is our time of openness. So why don't we get gold that has been refined in the fire? Why don't we get ready to have robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Why don't we Let Jesus fix our eyes and see that our purpose for being here is to tell a lost world that Jesus Christ has come. And he can cleanse their sin, and he can give them eternal life. And they can be ready for that day when judgment really does come. I think that's a good message, and one that's worth sharing right now. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have hard words to speak to us. I just pray that we would be willing to receive them. This is not um, judgment that you're speaking as much as it is a plea out of love. For us to come back to our first love, to realize what it was like to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, to have our sins forgiven, to be able to look you in the face, knowing someday we would look you in the face And we wouldn't see judgment there, we would see love. And that is because your son died on the cross. And right now, Father, we live in a world that's being paralyzed by fear. Help us to be those people who are willing, as we are able and as the the limits are being taken off maybe, uh, to be able to go out and share with, uh, certainly our relatives, what Jesus Christ came for, what that means and what it means to have hope in him, and what it means that he gave his life and we can have forgiveness. We don't have to fear death if we know our Lord. Help us to be the people that will do that. Help us to be a church that is alive for Jesus Christ and bearing fruit. And We ask this in his name.